0: We hope you enjoy this week's talk from the morning services. Thank you for joining us today. Grace and peace to you.
1: Our reading this morning comes from 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and from verse 1. This can be found on page 1196 of our Bibles. Paul writes this letter shortly after his first visit to Thessalonica. That first visit was very short, for he had had much opposition from Jews and Gentiles to him preaching the good news. Those first new Christians had made Paul leave the city quickly for his safety. Here Paul refutes false charges and encourages these new persecuted Christians. 1 Thessalonians chapter two, verse one. You know, brothers and sisters, that our visit to you was not a failure. We had previously suffered and been insulted in Philippi, as you know. But with the help of our God, we declare to you his gospel in spite of strong opposition. For the appeal we make does not spring from error or impure motives, nor are we trying to trick you. On the contrary, we speak as those approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel We're not trying to please people, but God, who tests our hearts. You know, we never used flattery, nor did we put on a mask to cover up greed. God is our witness. We were not looking for human praise, not from you or anyone else. As apostles of Christ, we could have been a burden to you, But we were gentle among you, like a mother caring for her little children. We loved you so much that we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well, because you had become so dear to us. Surely you remember, brothers and sisters, our toil and hardship, and urging you to live lives worthy of God, who calls you into his kingdom and glory. This is the word of the Lord.
2: Thanks, Alan. Well, as I said, we've got Greg preaching to us this morning. Many of you will have met Greg and Judith and their family, but for those of you that don't know him, Greg, tell us about yourself.
3: I'm Greg. Hello. Uh, I'm married to the gorgeous, fabulous Judith.
2: Wow, yep.
3: Um, A bishop told me when I was starting out in ministry uh, that I need to be very careful about the person I marry because they will either double or halve your ministry. (laughs) Well, Judith multiplies my ministry many times over. I'm very grateful for her.
2: Very good. And your accent is not Croydon, is it, Greg?
3: (laughs) No. um, (laughs) I'm from South Africa. I'm very proudly African.
2: Very good. And what do you do in your day job?
3: Well, Natasha, I am your
1: Archdeacon.
3: Yeah. Uh, those of you who are long-standing Anglicans will probably have some idea what that is. Uh, but essentially, there's lots of strands to the job, but a large part of it is looking after the clergy, uh, making sure they behave on the one side, <laughs> but also caring for them as well.
2: Mm. Uh, Good. Okay. What would you say, Greg, is your motivation? behind your work, what, what, why do you believe God has called you to this role of archdeacon?
3: Well, I think what underlines any ministry is a love for Jesus, mindful of all that he has done for me, for his glorious and wonderful salvation in Jesus Christ. And it's that love for me and my love for him that makes me want to serve. And then we serve using the various gifts and so on that we have. And I've discovered that part of my gift is encouraging and helping others in ministry and into ministry. And so an Archdeacon's role quite fits that quite well. Mm -hmm. So, yeah.
2: Really good. Now, I'd like actually to take the opportunity to pray for you in your role as Archdeacon this morning. So um, what would you like me to pray for in particular?
3: I think the big thing I'd like to pray for is that I continue trusting in Jesus, continue following him, continue growing in him. I think one of the dangers is when you get into this kind of role, you dash around to different churches all over the place, and you do a lot of giving out, and there's a real chance that you don't take much in. And very easily you can dry up as a Christian. So I don't want to dry up as a Christian. I want to keep growing and keep loving him. And so that's what I'd really
2: love prayer for. Mm, let's pray. Father God, we are delighted that Greg and Judith and Pat and Jean have come to join our church family here at Emmanuel. We're delighted that Greg uh, gets the opportunity on Sundays to sit and be one of us as our church um, family Lord, I pray that the times that he sits um, in our congregation alongside us as Greg, not as the Archdeacon, would be times of deep refreshing and times when he feels um, as if his compass has been realigned to point to you. I pray, Lord, for times of refreshment as well in his week, times when he's able to spend time with you, knowing you being his source, his inspiration, and his guide. I pray, Lord, that you would particularly be with him and give him what he needs in each conversation, each meeting, particularly with those which are not so smooth running, but just help him, Lord, in all that he does to continue with this ministry of encouragement. And now we pray, Lord, that you would use his words to encourage and strengthen each one of us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.
3: Well, everyone, can I encourage you to open your Bibles uh, to our passage, either if you use your uh, device, your phone, or the Bible in the pew. It's page 1196. And may I suggest that that really should be a discipline every time anyone gets up to preach. The preacher's task is, having prayerfully studied the Scriptures, is to teach and apply it to us today. And it's the hearer's task... To listen carefully and to test what he's been taught, not against the prevailing views and countless opinions that are out there in society, but against the scriptures themselves. You ought to be able to see that what I'm teaching you this morning can be seen in the scriptures. And you can't do that if your Bible is not open. So please can I encourage you to open your Bible. The fact that I'm the archdeacon is no guarantee that what I'll say is true or right. So hold me to account, look at the Scriptures, and test them. But there's also a second task, isn't there? That as we uh, look at the Scriptures, and having listened to it carefully, and being convinced of His teaching, we then need to put it into practice. And we all need help to do that. Let me pray. Father God, as we look at the Scriptures now, help me to explain Your Word faithfully and clearly. Help each of us to hear it rightly And respond in obedience and faith. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Apparently, after 2,000 years, the perfect vicar has been found. Isn't that great? He is the leader who can please everyone. He preaches for exactly 20 minutes, don't hold your breath in hope, uh, and then sits down. He condemns sin but never steps on anyone's toes. He works from 8 in the morning till 10 in the evening, doing everything from preaching, sermons, responding immediately to emails, to cleaning the hall floors. All his time is given to the church, and yet his wife and his perfectly behaved children never feel neglected. He drives an old car, buys lots of books and wears fine clothes. He's 35 years old and has been preaching for over 40 years. (laughs) He is tall on the short side, heavy set in a thin sort of way, and handsome. He has a burning desire to work with young people and spends all his time with the senior citizens. (laughs) He smiles all the time while keeping a straight face because he has a keen sense of humor That finds him seriously dedicated. He visits at least 15 church members every day and spends all his time evangelizing the non-members. And if you want to find him, you can always find him in his study. (laughs) He remains amiable even when the jovial person says, what a job, only work one day a week. Unfortunately, this perfect vicar burnt himself out and died at the age of 25. (laughs) Last week, John showed us from chapter 1 what a model church looks like. Paul writes to this young church to reassure them that they are the genuine article. That God has begun a work in them. Now, if you missed that, I'm not going to go over it again. You can go and watch it on the Emmanuel YouTube channel. Yaron chapter 2. We see Paul setting out for us his priorities for ministry. What we should be looking for in our clergy and those who lead us in ministry. How we should be encouraging them and one another in ministry. Certainly what Paul has to say here applies to the paid ministers in our churches. But it also applies to all of us who are involved in some ministry. It should shape and be reflected in all of us as we are involved in service for God. Whether we are on the PCC, uh, a children or youth leader, a welcomer, we help with refreshments on the music team, uh, however we are. So you can't go to sleep and think that this is all for the, for the paid staff. This is for all of us. Now uh, You'll recall that if you were with us last week, that this little church got started following a visit from Paul and his friends Silas and Timothy. A number of people had become Christians, and Paul's stay, however, was short-lived after some intense opposition, forcing him to flee Thessalonica. Now Paul is writing to encourage these young believers and to spur them on to stand firm as they continue under severe persecution. And these new Christians had opposition coming at them from two angles. Firstly, it seemed that the authenticity of their Christian faith was being denied. Oh, you know, it's all a hoax. Uh, You've just been misled. It's not real. You've got caught up in the emotion of it all. You need to come to your senses and stop this nonsense. Those are very similar words I heard uh, when I first became a Christian. And my aunt, who was not a Christian, said to me, that is all a load of nonsense and you'll just grow out of it. Maybe you've heard something like that. And such comments can sometimes eat away at our assurance. Are they right? Am I just caught up in the moment? Will it just fade and I'll go back to normal? And so we see in chapter 1 that Paul assures them that what had happened to them was genuine We read in chapter 1, verse 4 and 5. For we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit, and with deep conviction. But there was a second line of attack too. And this was to underline the message by attacking the messenger, casting slurs against Paul and his friends. And we can guess at the sort of things that they were saying by reading between the lines of chapter 2. Have a look down with me. In verse 3, we have words like error, impure motives, trying to trick you. Verse 5, flattery, cover up greed. And then verse 6, looking for praise from people. I'm sure you've heard the saying, the surest way to destroy the credibility of someone's message is to attack their character and motive. And can I suggest you to be on your guard against those who do that? Sadly, we see that in church. And it is this sort of attack on his own character that motivates Paul now to address the Thessalonians in chapter 2. And he defends his ministry, not because he's concerned about himself. He doesn't really care what people think about himself. But he's concerned for the Christians. He doesn't want them to be put off. He doesn't want them to think that his ministry amongst them was in vain. And so he says in verse 1 of chapter 2, You know, brothers and sisters, that our visit to you was not without results. Well, as Paul writes to defend his ministry amongst the Thessalonians, he gives us a model of what we should be doing, of what our priorities ought to be, of what constitutes genuine Christian ministry. And I want you to notice three things. Don't worry, the first point is a little longer than the other two, so we will end in time for lunch. Um, Paul shows us three things that characterize his ministry and should characterize all who serve in Christian ministry, whatever we may do, whether paid or volunteer. And the first is this that Paul's ministry had an urgency to tell the gospel. He had an urgency to tell the gospel. In fact, as you look through the whole chapter, uh, you can have no doubt where Paul's priority was. Look with me. Verse 2, we dare to tell you his gospel. Verse 4, we speak as those approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. Verse 8, we were delighted to share with you the gospel of God. Verse 9, we preach the gospel of God to you. Verse 12, encouraging, comforting, and urging you to live lives worthy of of God. Do you see it? What was the focus of Paul's ministry in Thessalonica? Well, it was speaking or telling the gospel. But why this preoccupation? Why this urgency to tell the gospel? Surely there must have been many other things uh, equally important for Paul to be doing. Isn't he a little bit over the top here? Paul's urgency stems from his understanding of the gospel. It is the gospel of God. It is the way God has provided a rescue for people from the coming wrath. Look back to chapter 1, verse 10. It is Jesus who rescues us from the coming wrath. This is at the heart of the Christian faith. This is at the heart of what it means to be Christian. You see, being a Christian is not the same as being a member of a club a spiritual version of the Rotary Club, if you like. It's not about making people happy or content or about adding just a little bit of spirituality to your CV. It is about a rescue. Well, my watch is talking to me. I'm just going to take it off so it doesn't (laughs) make noises again. i tell you. Don't trust technology. The Bible tells us that all of humankind have a problem. And our problem is our rejection of God. And his rule in our lives. And it means that because of that we are in a bad place. We are under God's wrath. And the Christian message, the gospel, which simply means good news. The good news of the Christian message Is about being rescued from God's wrath. And God accomplished this by sending Jesus. Who through his death on the cross, bore God's wrath in our place. So that as we trust in him, in Jesus, we are rescued from judgment. Now if you see someone about to step in front of a car, what do you do? You say to yourself, well, maybe they've seen the car and know what they're doing. It's their choice. Or we might say, well, it's not really any of my business what other people do, so I'm not going to interfere. Or we might say, they're free to go their own way. I wouldn't want to force my route on them. So we don't impose. Or we might say, oh, well, the car won't really hurt them. It doesn't matter. No, we don't do that, do we? We shout out a warning, and if we're close enough, we reach out to grab them and pull them to safety, don't we? Yes? I hope that's yes. (laughs) And yet, how often do we use those very arguments to stay silent and not tell the gospel? Oh, it's their choice. I don't want to interfere. I don't want to impose. It doesn't really matter. Friends, the gospel is urgent news and it does matter. It is the difference between life and death. And that is why Paul didn't care about the oppositional persecution. It was so important that he dared to preach knowing that it meant opposition. We see that, verse two. We had previously suffered and been treated outrageously in Philippi, as you know, but with the help of our God, we dared to tell you his gospel in the face of strong opposition. Sometimes when I look at what passes for modern Christianity or Christian ministry today, I wonder if we have really understood the urgency of the gospel. Do we understand that it is a matter of life and death? We are so reticent and risk-averse, we don't want to offend anyone, and so we stay silent. Genuine Christian ministry will be marked by a faithful proclamation of the gospel, of calling people to repent of sin and rebellion against God, and to turn and put their trust in Jesus as their Lord and Savior, that they might be rescued From the coming wrath. And yes, such a focus will draw opposition, not only from outside, dare I suggest it will draw opposition even from within the church, from those who don't understand the urgency of the gospel we proclaim. And it will be tough, friends, which is why we should be encouraged by that little phrase Paul includes in verse 2 with the help of our God. Paul recognizes that we need God's help if we are to keep the urgency of the gospel at the heart of our Christian ministry, faithfully proclaiming the gospel despite opposition. Friends, we should be praying daily for one another in our various ministries, and especially for our clergy, that they would keep on telling the gospel despite opposition. And that God would give us that sense of urgency to make us bold so that we would dare to take the opportunities that come our way and to tell people about Jesus. Is that true of you? Is that true of me? An urgency to tell the gospel. But secondly, we see in this passage uh, that Paul's urgency to tell the gospel Um, comes out of a deep desire to please God rather than man. To please God rather than people. Of course, motives are always hard to argue, aren't they? Because people can't see what's inside us. We can make claims, but they're hard to test. And yet Paul wants the Thessalonians to see his motives here. Look at the passage again with me. Paul says that they preached the gospel, verse 3, not from error or impure motives, nor are we trying to trick you. But rather, he says, he shares the good news of Jesus out of a desire, verse 4, not to please people, but God who tests our hearts. And friends, it was this conviction that affected the way Paul worked, the way he did ministry. Verse 5, we never used flattery, nor did we put a mask to cover our greed. Verse 6, we were not looking for praise from people, not from you or anyone else. You see, the gospel was not Paul's good idea that he had come up with. He had been entrusted with God's gospel. It is God's gospel, and so he is answerable to God for what he does with it. Paul tells us elsewhere in Galatians chapter 1, in verse 11 and 12, he says this, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel I preached is not of human origin. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. So when Paul preached... In one sense, it didn't matter what people thought. It was what God, whose gospel it was, thought that mattered. And that meant that he wasn't free to rearrange it, to mix it up, as it were, to leave bits out according to the audience. And surely the same is true for us, who are called to Christian ministry today. Genuine ministry is marked by a concern for what God thinks above what people think. And there's a real challenge here because there is massive pressure and massive temptation for those of us who teach the gospel to just go with the flow, to fit in with the popular mood of society, to leave bits out, to use words of flattery, or to soften the message to make it just a little bit more palatable for our sensitive ears. We who teach the Bible, who share the good news, whether it's from the pulpit or amongst the kids, Sunday kids groups, or in our home groups, or even as we talk to our neighbor across the fence, we are answerable to God for how we handle his word, not people. So genuine Christi- Christian ministry will be marked firstly by a real urgency to tell the good news about Jesus our Savior. But also there will be a deep desire to please God rather than people by being faithful and not soft peddling or living at, leaving out the uncomfortable bits to make it more palatable. But there's one final characteristic of what genuine God-honoring ministry looks like. And that is that there will be a deep love for people. A deep love for people. And we see this love displayed all the way through this passage again. Look with me, verse 7. We were like young children among you, just as a nursing mother cares for her children. Verse 8. We cared for you because we loved you so much. We were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. Verse 9, we worked night and day in order not to be a burden to anyone. And verse 11 and 12, we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children, encouraging, comforting, and urging you. It's hard not to see Paul's deep love for these people. But where did that love come from? Was, Paul's, was Paul naturally affectionate? A cuddly kind of bloke? Were the Thessalonians naturally lovable? Why was it that Paul and his companions loved them so much? Well, I guess some people are affectionate. And certainly some people can be very lovable. But Paul is clearly motivated by something more than just casual affection. And if we look back to chapter 1, we get a hint as to why Paul cares so deeply for them. In verse 2 and 3 of chapter 1, Paul thanks God for their faith, their love and hope that has sprung out of their response to the gospel. And then he says in verse 4 of chapter 1, For we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God that he has chosen you. You see, Paul's love for these people is because God loved them first. Genuine Christian ministry is motivated by love. It is seeing those whom we serve as God does. When we look around our community, we look at our friends, our family, our colleagues, our neighbors the stranger who turns up in church or to one of our events? Do we see them as God sees them? Do we love them because God loves them? But notice how Paul shows his love for these people. Verse 8 and 9 of chapter 2. Because we loved you so much, we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. Surely you remember, brothers and sisters, our toil, our hardship. We worked night and day in order not to be a burden to anyone while we preached the gospel of God to you. You see, the Thessalonians weren't just another evangelistic scalp on Paul's belt. He loved them so much that he wanted to share his life with them. And it was his love for them that makes him keen not to be a burden to them. And it was his love for them that makes him willing to sacrifice so much in order that they might hear about Jesus and come to know and love him. That's what genuine Christian ministry looks like. It will be marked by a genuine love for people, to see them as God does, a love that will be willing to share our lives, to make sacrifices so that they might hear about Jesus. Is that true of our ministries? Is there genuine love for those whom we are ministering to? And is that love marked by a willing sacrifice to share our lives, our home, our finances, our gifts, that others might hear the gospel? So what does genuine gospel Christian ministry look like? What should we be looking for in our clergy In the Johns and in Elliot and Natasha and the like. In our home group leaders, in our Sunday school leaders. For those who serve in all the various ministries in the life of the church. How should we be encouraging them? Well, Paul's model for ministry here teaches us that genuine Christian ministry should be marked by an urgency in telling the gospel. That it's a matter of life and death. It should be marked by a deep desire to please God rather than people. And it should be marked by a deep, deep love for those whom we're ministering to. To see them as God sees them. And to love them enough that we're willing to share our lives with them. Make sacrifices in order they may have the opportunity to learn about Jesus whom we love. Well let's have a moment of quiet, and as we sit in quiet, if the band would come up, and after a moment, we will sing again. And in a way, the song we're going to sing uh, is a prayer. We'll probably stand and sing it, but that's okay. You can stand and pray. Will it be our prayer? to walk humbly with our God.
0: Thanks for listening to the Emmanuel Croydon Podcast. For more information about our church and everything we have going on, visit our website, emmanuelcroydon.org.uk You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram to see and hear what's going on in the life of our church. God bless you and have a wonderful week.